Hear the word of God from Job 28. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Orphir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church family. Can you guys hear me well? We good? Volume okay? Wonderful. Guys, what a beautiful day. I mean, it is absolutely gorgeous. But you know what makes it even more beautiful to me is the beautiful people that I see sitting around here. Can I tell you that it does my heart so much good to see all of your faces. I mean, it's been so long, I felt like since, I mean, even, even, even more than Easter, because I kind of, Easter was like that day of like, can I get everything ready, kind of get pumped up for Easter, but today, a normal Sunday where we get to see all your faces together, as we come together as the body, just warms my heart. Can I tell you, people, there's something beautiful, something incredible, something God-ordained in this sacred assembly of His people together. He called us to do this thing called a Christian life together in community. And then when the larger body like this gathers together, we call the assembly of God's people. 
And in the assembly, God led his people. He's, he revealed the Ten Commandments to the assembly. He led his people to war through the assembly. He led his people as a nation in the assembly. And in this assembly, God meets with us, speaks with us. And so I love the gathering of his people. But can I also tell you something else? It's when I see the gathering of people who are in different places, different stages, different areas, different things are happening in their walk. It encourages me so much. When I see prayers answered, when I see healing being done, when I see people who are rejoicing over needs being met, when I see people who are weeping, I know that my experience, your experience, has a purpose. And as we come together as a sacred assembly, as we look at each other and we're reminded of that, that's one of the beautiful things that God's blessed us with as we gather together, is that, hey, wherever you're at, somebody else knows what it's like. And you don't have to bear that burden by yourself. And if you're in a dark place of lament, that's okay. And if you're in a great place of celebration, that's okay. And wherever you're at, we can both lament and celebrate together as a body. That's just so beautiful to me. Today, guys, as a church, we're continuing in our series through the wisdom literature. Remember that these books are meant to be read and understood together. Job is not a standalone book. It's not meant to be understood by itself. Neither is Proverbs. Neither is Ecclesiastes. They're all meant to be understood in light of each other and understood together. Together they give a picture of what it means to be human. Together they give a picture of the human experience. They teach you how to seek wisdom and live a godly life on earth. Last week we looked at Job and we saw such terrible tragedy befall him. And then we saw his song of lament, his prayer of lament, his curse against the day that he was born in chapter 3. And we discovered that last week, it is okay to lament. It's okay to weep. It's okay to, to, to come forth in tears and to, to go before God with your frustrations. And it's okay to do that as a body and as a church. And so that's where we are. We're at this point that what we call the prologue of Job. It's the first three chapters. And all the bad stuff that's happened to him, that he, his period of lament. And that prologue concludes with the suffering and bewildered Job, who's rebuked by his wife, and he's approached by three friends who go to try and provide wisdom and counseling. Their names are Eliphaz, the Tehanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Nehahathite. They're all non-Israelites, like Job, and they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God and suffering and the human condition. And this kind of moves us into the main part of the book. And the rest of the book, it first off starts with Job speaking, and uh, then it goes, the, the response from a friend, then Job will respond to a friend, then another friend will respond, and then Job responds, and kind of back and forth, kind of philosophical arguments and accusations and responses, back and forth for three cycles. And it's this whole debate that occurs, and it focuses on three questions, and I got this from the Bible Project. The first question is, is God truly just in character? The second question is, and does God run the universe on strict principles of justice? And three, and if so, then how is Job's suffering to be explained? So three questions that these friends are philosophically arguing is, one, is God just? Two, does God run the universe in justice, in a strict sense of justice? And three, if he does, then how in the world is Job suffering the way he's suffering? And so we're going to see Job and their friends are working from this huge assumption about what God's justice ought to look like in the world. Namely, that every single thing that happens in the universe should operate according to the strict principles of justice. So if you're wise, a good person, and you honor God, good things shall happen to you. God will reward you. 
But if you're evil and stupid and do st- sinful things, then bad things will happen to you. God will punish you. And now Job's constant argument throughout his speech is this. First of all, that he's innocent. He says, no, no, listen, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. So the implication is that his suffering is not a divine punishment. Now we know that actually from the prologue that both of these things are actually true. Remember, God himself said Job is righteous and blameless. And so Job concludes his argument by accusing God. God either doesn't run the world according to justice, or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. And that's where Job is at. The friend, on the other hand, they beg to differ. Their argument is that God is just. The implication being that God always runs the world according to justice in this way. So they conclude by accusing, not God, but by accusing Job. Job, you must have done something really, really bad for God to punish you like this. They even start making up possible sins that Job must have done. Maybe you did this, you just don't even know that you did it. But in the whole process, Job is saying, no, no, I'm innocent. In fact, he gets so fed up with the friends that eventually he just gives up on them. He says, forget you guys, I'm not even talking to you anymore because you don't believe me. I'm just going to talk straight to God here. Now, something that to be aware of is that Job is on this emotional roller coaster, and who can blame him? He used to think that God is just, but now he can't reconcile his concept of God as being just with all his suffering. And in some outbursts, he'll accuse God of being a bully. Once he even declares that God has orchestrated all the injustice in the world. But the moment he utters that, he's terrified by that prospect. Because he wants to hope and believe that God is truly just. So Job is everywhere in this, in the, in this section of scripture. And we see that in the middle of this discourse, we found Job chapter 28. In the middle of all the arguments that are happening, Job breaks out into this poem or hymn to wisdom. It feels out of place. Like this isn't where this random poem belongs, yet it, it fits in my mind to what is happening to Job. He's so up and down. One moment he's on the verge of cursing God, and the next he's on his knees turning to God. Can I tell you something, my people? It is okay that sometimes you go through a wide range of emotions. It's okay, but sometimes the, the, the event or tragedy will call for it. It's okay for you to feel the depth of all the emotions that you feel. God is not afraid of them. And your community isn't afraid to be here with you during them. What I'm saying to you is it's okay that one moment you feel so distressed that you're like, God, why are you doing this? I want to curse you. To the next moment, God, I need you. God, I love you. That's okay. That's okay. My, my mom had this saying in Korean that I thought was a common Korean saying. It's a weird one. I'm going to say it anyway. But basically in Korean, it translates to English. It goes, if you cry... Oh, if you laugh after you, if you laugh and cry at the same time, your butt turns red. That's the translation. And I was like, I just thought that was a normal Korean saying. Like, I just, cause she said that my whole life. I typed it up t- this morning, actually, on Google. I was like, wait a minute, I want to look at my mom's saying here. Is this an actual Korean saying? So I looked it up. There actually is a Korean folk saying that if you cry and laugh at the same time, but the saying actually goes, but you grow hair, more hair from your butt. It's a folk saying. I don't know what it is. I guess my mom didn't want to say that part, so she said my butt turned red. I don't know. I have to call her up today after the service and find out. But this idea that I, there's a beautiful existence. Um, I think Erica shared this. What movie was it from, Erica, that he said? Magnolia. From Steel Magnolias. Who knows that quote from Steel Magnolias about crying and laughing? Anybody? Do you know? Do you guys, anybody know that? Who knows? Who can say that quote? Eric shared it with this podcast. Laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. That's from the movie Steel Magnolias, in case you didn't know. I didn't know this, but thank you, Erica. 
And I love that idea, this laughter through tears. Guys, there are times when you just can't help but cry, but it's okay in the midst of crying that you just need to laugh as well. I think there's a problem that we have that we sometimes divide our emotions into processing and what we can process is one emotion at a time. But one of the most powerful times in my life is when I lost a friend of mine and I was with his son, the friend that I lost, I was with his son, he's in middle school. And we got together the day that he passed away. And as we were talking, we started sharing just funny stories about his father. And we were crying and then we were laughing and crying and then we were laughing. And he later spoke and said that moment was what he needed so desperately in his healing. Laughter through tears. Laughter through crying. My people, it's okay for you to feel the depths of emotion. And it's okay to feel all of it. And your community is here to feel all of it with you. If you need people to cry with, people to laugh with, or do both with. You can do it in community. And on that side note, I have something to say about Job's friends. Here's the deal. When you read about Job's friends, I feel like they get a really bum rap. I mean, most people who read this are probably thinking, and rightly so, that Job's friends are clueless on how to help someone. I mean, the last thing you do is get into a philosophical argument with someone who's lost everything. Right, that's just good advice I'm going to give to all of you guys. If you're dealing with someone who's dealing with tragedy, don't walk up to them to get into a philosophical argument with them. Just, just saying that, okay? That's for you guys all to be aware of. I mean, seriously, that's, that's just common knowledge. You don't start blaming them for sin you don't know about because tragedy hit them hard. Friends probably shouldn't debate with you while you're weeping. You're weeping your eyes out over losing everything. It's just not a good move. So hopefully we're in agreement on that part right there. It's not a good move to accuse somebody of their sin or to get into a philosophical argument when they've lost everything. But here's where I think these friends get a bum rap. They were there. They were there. I mean, they were present and sitting with their friend during tragedy. Yeah, they said some dumb things, but they left their lives behind to be with their friend. Presence is so important. I know some of you get uncomfortable with tragedy and being around people who, who've been through tough times. It isn't that you don't care. It's often you don't know what to say. Or you don't, you don't want to say the wrong thing. I get it. I totally understand that. But presence is so important. Job's friends said the wrong things, but I bet Job later in life looks back and remembers that their fr his friends were there. That they were there during his roughest times. My people, we might not know all the right things to say. Can, can I tell you as a pastor, I, about 99.9% .9 of the time, I don't know the things to say. But I can still be there. My people, as a community, we might not know all the right answers, but we can still be there for each other. And that's one of the things I love about the sacred gathering of the church, is right now we don't know that even just being here, being in presence, being open and vulnerable and willing to talk to somebody could be that very thing that person needs. So yeah, I think Job's friends were not very bright, did some dumb things, but they were there. And I just love that about them. And it just shows that how human beings, we're all imperfect, but I just love the fact that through community, through gathering, we can bring healing to each other. So let's dive into Job chapter 28. One commentary on Job calls this chapter the interlude. It seems to be what we would call a timeout reflection on the nature and sources of wisdom. So Job's, Job's friends look like they kind of run out of steam. Their voices, bitter and biting as they were, have kind of fallen silent. Job is left to himself to reflect and ponder on life and what, everything that's happened to him. And his conclusion is, this wisdom is to be found in the fear of the Lord. The full text is worth, is worth knowing, but here's kind of brought down to one verse. Job 28, 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. 
And this has been Job to understand the way life is to be lived. That is why in the opening verses of the next chapter, we find him longing for the days when this rule of life seemed to bring God's discernible blessing. So what we found in this in chapter 28 starts off with this kind of section on, for, for the first 11 verses we call the search for wisdom. Where can wisdom be found, Job 28, 12 says. Where does understanding dwell? Does life have meaning? Or is this life, after all, meaningless? If you look at the writer of Ecclesiastes, it seems like he characterizes life from one perspective. He says literally, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Is there a reason? Is there meaning to life? Or are skeptics right after all? Is life basically unfair? There's no order. There's no structure. No universal law. No truth. You live and then you die. So you better take the most out of life now. You may show kindness and love, but in the end, it won't make a difference. Is that how it is? And Job, in the midst of all these arguments, people are even saying, hey, maybe your life is just meaningless. Maybe that's what conclusion you should come to. Tragedy has hit you harder than I've ever heard anybody hit by tragedy. He's still not ready to accept that life is meaningless. In 27.6, he says, I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. And it sounds self-righteous, but what he's literally saying is, is, is that, is that does, Job has an, has an understanding that he does have a, a good case. God has told us that he's righteous in this way. He hasn't done anything wrong. So he's trying to make sense of, I haven't done anything wrong. Why does bad things happen to me? There's an age-old question of wisdom there, guys, because here's what wisdom is in this circumstance. It's just answering this hard question that we all often ask ourselves, is why does that guy who cheated prosper? And why do I, when I work really hard, why didn't I get the promotion? Am I right? Why did I, why can't I get pregnant? Why can't, why did I have to lose my child? Why did I have to have cancer? And these are questions that grip us and rip us apart if we let it. And we ask questions like, can, can I make sense of it? Does this world have meaning? Is there no meaning? And so we're left to this kind of choice. We're left to this situation where we're thinking, okay, either life has no meaning, so then who cares? Or does life have meaning? Then what makes sense of this? Makes sense of my tragedy? Makes sense of why these things happen? And if you're left to these two choices, then you think, okay, I can either throw my hands up in despair or what or what so then job imagines a mining expedition in 28 the opening verse of this chapter give a glimpse of the mining techniques it's it's talking about how they die for silver and gold and they go to the deepest of places they go to places where no creatures ever set foot or humans have set foot this is regarded precious sources that have been assessed but the ancients dig great tunnels deep into the surface, but finding wisdom is another thing. In other words, he goes through this huge explanation of how hard it is to find precious jewel. And they'll search and they'll search and they'll find it, but wisdom is even harder to find. 28, 13 through 15 says, man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can it be priced, be weighed in silver. It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. So for all of man's achievements and abilities, he can't answer Job's dying question. The meaning and purpose of a righteous man who suffers, nothing in this world can explain that. And the answer to life's great questions cannot be discerned by man alone. Man may colonize Mars one day and map the human genome. He may compose music like Beethoven's Ninth or Justin Bieber's Baby. He might write poetry like Shakespeare or Dr. Seuss. 
He may paint like Rembrandt and Picasso, but he can find out, but can he find out what wisdom truly is? The kind of wisdom that speaks of ultimate truth and reality on his own apart from God, who makes sense of this world. The answer is no. He cannot find out the ultimate wisdom apart from God. No one can. And the answer is not completely negative. I love how it says here, there's a rumor of wisdom that's discernible in the world, chapter 28, 22. The world reflects something of the wisdom of God, but Job is concerned about something deeper than that. He says, God understands the way to it. And he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. God alone, the rest of the verse chapter says, is, is, under this setting is, God alone is a fit witness to himself. It's Hilary of Poitiers who once wrote, God alone is a fit witness to himself. And what that quote is saying is that no one apart from God himself can give us reliable information about God, who he is, and what he does. Apart from divine revelation, there is no true and certain knowledge because God has no peer. He has no equal that can understand him and know it all. So our best and most fit witness of God is himself. So our conclusion that is typical, Job's conclusion that is typical of what all the wisdom book says, it is to fear God. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom to shut its understanding. It's exactly what the book of Proverbs says. And it provides the conclusion to the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. Guys, can I hear? I want you to hear this. this is what, what this passage, what Job is crying out, is that we have this unanswerable question. We have this question of, okay, is life meaningless? Or is, is there a reason for suffering? Because right? the question exists. That, that, that there's almost this idea that one has to be it or the other. And so he's, in this question of that wisdom, his search of wisdom is answering that question. Can God exist with my suffering? Is there a justice to the world? Is there, does there a sense in this world? And the conclusion then is this, is that the only one who can give justice and wisdom to this world is God. And the only one who can tell us about God is God himself. He is the only fit witness and what does God say? In the, all these books of wisdom, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. And the fear of the God is not terror. It's the opposite of terror. That's why uh, uh, so many of us, when we use that term fear of the Lord, we have this idea of fear like a horror movie. Right? When we use the word fear, we think uh, like, oh, the way we should feel when we watch like something really scary, like, like Chucky or something like that, which I just dated myself. I probably shouldn't use Chucky. Maybe like a newer horror movie, which I don't watch any of those, so I don't know any. But either way, it's not that type of fear. It's not a fear of like, oh, I'm so scared. It's, it's this idea of, of, of willingness to bow and says, whatever the Lord does is right. It's, it's easier now as God's people to understand this because God's wisdom has been revealed to us in personal terms. God revealed himself to us in his own son, Jesus Christ. He is the very wisdom of God. He tells us things about God that otherwise we would never know. Remember what I said, the only fit witness to God is God himself. So what did God do? He gave us a fit witness of himself. He gave us God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. He tells us that God loves us with a love that's beyond our grasp. He tells us that God's covenant is certain fulfillment, that his word cannot be broken. And we look to Jesus and all that he's done on behalf of sinners. And we know that God is committed to us. Here's what I mean. Sinclair Ferguson says this. The fear of God defies our attempts at definition because it is really another way of saying knowing God. It is a heartfelt love for Him because of who He is and what He has done. A sense of being in His majestic presence. 
It's a thrilling awareness that we have the greatest of all privileges mingled with the realization that now the only thing that really matters is his opinion. To have the assurance of his smile is everything. To feel that he frowns on what we do is desolation. To fear God is to be sensitive to both his greatness and his graciousness. It is to know him and to love him wholeheartedly and unreservedly. I like to this, my son Hudson, as a five-year-old, is the most emotional, dramatic kid I know. He's just full of emotion. He just has emotion. He has to express it. Right? I mean, his type of emotion, he, he literally, like, he'll tell you that, like, he's obsessed with fishing. So every morning, he will, he'll wake up and says, are we going fishing? I love fishing. And he'll just talk about it. He just shares. Or if he stubs his toe, or if he misses you, he'll say, I really miss you. Or what he, like, it really, it's really cute, and I love it. But he comes up to me sometimes, and he goes, Appa, you're my favorite daddy. And I said, that's great. Okay, I'll take that. One-on-one, I'm good, right? But it is, it's, he's just full of emotion. But one of my favorite hard things to say is that when I yell at him, and when I have to, uh, not criticize, when I have to discipline him, when I have to say, stop doing something, and he knows that I'm disappointed in him, his face just goes, and he shows all that emotion. He just goes, ooh, and it hurts my heart. Sometimes it doesn't hurt my heart as much when I'm really annoyed, but other times it hurts my heart. But he feels it. He feels it so much that if I disapprovingly look at him, if I look at him like this, or if I, my voice gets a little loud, he feels it. And he also loves it, though, when I say, oh, guess what? That's kind of, I don't know why I do this. This is what me and my boys do. I, always, I walk up to them and I say, hey, guess what? I love you. And that's like my favorite thing to say. And I just like to say, guess what? And they're like, what? I love you. And there's a moment when he goes, I love you, too. Guys, the fear of the Lord is not this horror movie fear. It's this beautiful relationship knowing that that person can, can wreck you because that person is disappointed in you. Hudson gets wrecked when I'm upset with him. But he also knows how radically I love him and he feels it to the depths of his bones. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom because you, you come to this point, right, in the suffering of Job and you get to this place before God and you don't make sense of the world and the world is terrible and it hurts and it breaks your heart and you want it to make sense, but it doesn't. And you get to this, finally, you get to this point that says, okay, I can choose. Do I choose that it's all meaningless, that it's worthless, or do I choose that God, you're still good and you're my father and I will choose you? Because I know that you're better and you are good and I choose to have faith in who you are. More than my own limited understanding of how I process the world. More than the philosophies of the religions of that time. I choose you. That is the fear of the Lord. Does that make sense? And that is the beginning of wisdom when you can stop and say, God, you're only fit witness to yourself. I don't comprehend. I can't get it. It's too much for me. This world and its philosophies, the sufferings and the tragedies, it is too much for me. But I choose to believe you. I choose to trust you. I choose to follow you because the other, th- other way is meaningless and I cannot even begin to go there. And that's the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord. So my people, in the midst of a suffering world, in the midst of ups and downs, in the midst of celebration and lament, will you choose to fear Him? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know that there's hard times that we go through. 
And sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it does. God, you show that in the book of Proverbs. You show us that, yes, most of the time, good things happen when we make good, smart decisions. But we also see through Ecclesiastes and Job that sometimes the world is just broken. And it doesn't make sense. And we don't get the whole picture. We don't see what's going on. But God, in those times, God, help us. Give us the grace that we can choose that you are still good and we trust in you. And God, that we can stay in the midst of all circumstances, no matter what may happen, no matter what befalls us, what tragedies may happen, that we can still stand strong and know that we are, our weight is carried by our brothers and sisters, and we know that we still have the ultimate, the ultimate fit witness of who you are in Jesus. So God, we choose you and say that you are a good, loving Father. And you have great things in store. Help us when we struggle. Be with us when we cry out. Be with us when we celebrate as well. God, may we know you like a child knows his parent so well. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Waypoint Church, as we continue in our worship service this morning, I want to turn your attention to the table. We don't have a, an actual table in front of us, but, uh, but, but as we partake in this meal, I want to invite you, you can go ahead and pull out uh, the, the, the elements, the bread and, and the juice. And for those of you uh, who are with us from, from home, I invite you to, uh, to, to pull those out right now, uh, the, the bread and, and the juice. And um, as we come to the table this morning, um, Something I, I wanted to share with you guys, just a, a random fact about myself um, I, that I didn't realize was, was strange until I've, I've talked with other people about it is I don't, I don't remember any of my dreams, like, like pretty much never. It's, it's actually kind of nice because we'll, you know, my, my wife and I will watch a, a show at night or something and she'll, she'll dream about like if something bad happens, she'll be dreaming about it. I'm like, yeah, there's nothing happening. Like I don't remember any of it. So I, I feel like there's, there's, there's an element of like, yeah, it's, it's great. Like I, I go to sleep, I wake up, and, and things are good. No, no baggage from the night. Except there are, there are times when I, I feel like I just can't sleep. Like I can't turn my mind off. I don't dream, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm just flooded with, with the anxiety, the fear, the sense of failure. And I just, I can't, I can't stop it. I don't, I don't know if any of you ever, ever deal with that, of just the, the weight of the world that, that you're immersed in just feels constantly on you. And rest, rest would be great, but it just, you don't find it. Or at least it doesn't just, just happen. And, and you're just laying there thinking through, just your mind's just running through all these things. All these hard things that you're, you're dealing with, that you're facing. And at some point, you're, you're, asking, you're, you're asking the Lord, God, will you take this from me? God, will you, can I, can I put my weight on you? Can I put these concerns on you? Can I put my anxiety on you? Can I put my fear on you? Let you hold it for a while, just for a few hours so that I can rest. Because I know that you're with me, God. 
And I think that many of us, we, we're confronted with, with all of these things. I mean, it, it, when I feel that way, the last thing I want to do is, is come and be around people. I want to go into hiding and just be alone. But one of the beauties of, of coming to the table this morning and being able to partake in it as a body is that for, for some of us, we, we come into this place and we feel that way. We feel fear. We feel anxiousness. We feel uh, restless. And we're invited to, to know each other's sadnesses and to, to walk and share in that. And then others, for others of us, we, we feel joy and, and excitement and, and happiness about the things that life is bringing. And it's not wrong to feel those ways. We shouldn't feel guilty for feeling those ways. But that the Lord invites us to, to experience both and to share in both. And that we don't, we don't always understand it. But as the, the, it says in the Proverbs, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to Him, and He will make your path straight. And so as we turn to the table this morning, as, as we partake of, of the bread and the juice, we can look at these things. We, we can be confronted, just, just like Job is confronted with these, these things that he's wrestling with. We can say, I don't understand. But then we can also turn to the one who, who understands all things, who is eternally wise, eternally good, eternally faithful, loyal. His loyal love is turned toward you. And he responds to, your, to our lack of understanding with the cross. And so I just want you to take a moment this morning, before we, before we partake of this, before we eat this meal together, to think about this, to think about this. The cross and, and, and the works of, of what God has accomplished through Jesus at the cross, Jesus is becoming more and more central to our lives every day. Every day he is becoming more and more central until his work is completed. And we rejoice in this. This, this table is just a, a, a precursor to an even greater banquet that we'll share together in all of God's glory, all of his splendor, together. As he's making us right with him and right with one another. That both things are true and, and matter. And so I want you to just take a moment at your seats and just reflect on how Jesus is becoming greater and greater in your life. And I want you to, to, to cling to him, to, to say, Lord, I'm going to seek your understanding. I'm going to seek your understanding this morning because I don't understand. And I'm okay with that because I know that you do. So I want you to take a moment and just, just reflect on that. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, he shared in this, this last supper with his disciples. And they shared in this, this last meal together. 
And he took the bread and he broke it and he said, take and eat this. This is my body broken for you. So I invite you, let's, let's eat the bread broken for you, the body of Christ. And when he took the cup, he gave thanks and he gave it to them. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that your sins are forgiven? And I invite you to drink of this cup together. And what this, this bread and what this, this drink means for us is, is the promise of, of a new covenant that God is making all things new. That even, even the tears and sadness are going to be a distant memory one day as all things are, are new in His creation. That even we are being made new in Him. And we trust Him in that. That's our response. That's our understanding now as new people in Christ. Is that we are no longer, our, we, we realize we're not our own, but we are His. We belong fully to Him and that we can trust Him. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you and all that you have done for us. God, we know that through your Son, Jesus, your, your love has been poured out. It's lavished upon us. And God, we, even, even in the moments where we don't understand, Lord, we, we trust you in this. As we take of this bread, as we drink this cup, God, we know that yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And we trust you in that. We trust that you are bringing about every promise that you have made. And it will be fulfilled in Christ. And until that day comes, Lord, we, we lean, we trust in your understanding, Lord. We, we pray for wisdom in our lives. God, you bring it about, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.